Tuesday and uh, to my knowledge was able to uh, study some of John the Baptist's story with you. Tonight we're going to transition into the birth of Jesus for our study this evening. Do I, is the PowerPoint up? Thank you very much. We're going to continue our study of the life of Jesus by transitioning to a study of his birth. Now, our focus will be on Luke chapter 2, particularly the first 20 or so verses, but we will examine other uh, passages as well. Tonight, as we engage in a study of Jesus' birth, I I want to begin with considering when Jesus was born. Now, you know more than likely that our calendar system is built on the assumption that Jesus was born, what year? What year? Well, there is no year zero, technically. (laughs) Technically, if you look into it, you go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., and there's no year zero. But that's the way it it was built with um, the Anno Domino, aspect of our calendar being uh, based on the birth of Jesus. Now, here's the thing you got to remember. This is a a, a Julian Gregorian calendar system that we're under. This calendar system was made centuries ago, and and the dating of Jesus's birth within that calendar was was done very early, like in the, the third, fourth century, something of that nature. But some of the data they used to come up with the year of Jesus' birth that we often refer to as year zero was uh, less, a little less than accurate because they didn't have the historical records that we now have. And so what I want to do is I want us to consider what year Jesus was born, but I want to do it based on the information we do have in Scripture and the historical information we've been given since. So look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 in particular. And we're going to begin our study by noting some significant items that contribute to dating when Jesus was born. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. I'm going to go ahead and pause there. So there are two items mentioned in the, the first two verses of Luke chapter 2 that contribute to a dating of when Jesus was born. Those two items have to do with people. First, you have a reference to Caesar Augustus in the first verse, and then in the second verse, you have a reference to Quirinius and a title associated with Quirinius as governor of Syria. Those two uh, pieces of information will be important in our understanding of dating the birth of Jesus. Now, We also have some information provided in Matthew's gospel that contributes. Matthew doesn't provide much information related to the birth of Jesus in particular. He kind of jumps from the end of chapter 1 where he tells about the announcement of Jesus' birth to Joseph. Then you get to chapter 2 and he kind of makes this jump until into Jesus' childhood, if you will. So there's not a lot related to the birth events, which should not be surprising because Matthew's not focused on Mary's version of events like Luke is. But if we turn to Matthew chapter 2 and you look at verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born, notice that after Jesus was born, not when Jesus was born, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now I'm going to skip a section and just go skip on down to verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2. It adds this, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So there are a couple of pieces of information that we need to note here. First, you need to notice uh, when you're looking at the dating of Jesus' birth, that Jesus was born while Herod was king. Notice, this information was provided after Jesus was born. So Herod was king when Jesus was born. Also notice 
this emphasis on two years old or under. When Herod committed the slaughter of the innocents, as it is often referred to, or massacre of the innocents, as it is referred to, he chose to execute every child, every male child, in the region of Bethlehem that was two years old or younger. And he chose that age range based on the information he had obtained from the wise men. The wise men, when they arrived from the east in Jerusalem in search of the Christ, they first approached Herod. They ended up in Bethlehem, but Herod had told them to report back to him when they find the, the, this Christ, which uh, uh, God intervened to prevent them from returning to Herod, and that, that's how uh, Herod ended up being tricked. Now, Herod's doing the math, and based on the information he got from those wise men, he's concluded that Jesus could be as old as two years, so the best tactic for him is to, to kill any child within that age range. Now, here's a couple of things we don't know. We don't know how old Jesus was when the wise men arrived. They did not arrive necessarily the night of his birth. In fact, we know they did not arrive, the, uh, or, or we can conclude that they, he did, they did not arrive the night of his birth because they, by the time we get to Jesus' birth, they're in a house. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but... And we'll talk more about the wise men next week. But we don't know how old Jesus was, how many days, months, possibly years, old Jesus was when these wise men approached. We also don't know how long they took from the time they left Herod, how long it was until Herod figured out that they weren't coming back. So a good span of time could have passed between uh, Herod's first conversation with these wise men and the point at which he says, all right, we've got to kill babies. So anyway, there are some factors involved here that, that, need, that we don't have information for, but we do know that Jesus' birth occurred during the reign of Caesar Augustus as emperor, during, the, uh, during some form of, of rule, governorship in the, in the region by a guy named Quirinius, and during the time when Herod is king of Judea in that unique sense that he had. And we know that, it had to have, that Herod had to have had some reason for, for killing two years old, or children as old as two years, I should say. So let's think about this a little bit and use some history here. Since we know that... Caesar Augustus was emperor when Jesus was born. We need to first start with him. Caesar Augustus reigned from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. So that does give us plenty of space for placing the birth of Jesus. The other thing we know about from Scripture about Caesar Augustus here is that he orders this census. Now, official historical records do not provide very much detail about censuses ordered by Augustus. In fact, um, one author pointed out that there is no record of any law of Augustus that a universal census be held, but Caesar Augustus did reorganize Roman government to include doing censuses in certain places throughout the empire. For instance, we know that in Egypt, there was, a cus that there was a census held every 14 years during the reign of Caesar Augustus. And being that Palestine is not that far from Egypt, it's possible that a similar pattern was in place there. Now, Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian, does mention a census in the year A.D. 6. So... I'll mark that with the star. You can, it, it's on the A.D. side of this timeline. That in A.D. 6, there was a census, according to Josephus, and uh, it, it occurred just after the deposition of Archelaus as king of Judea and the incorporation of his territory into Syria. And it cites the part Quirinius 
had in that census as governor of Syria. Now, 6 AD doesn't quite work for us. That's a little too late, and we'll explain why in a moment. But Luke's account, called Luke's book of Acts, does make reference to another census. In fact, if you'll turn over very quickly to Acts chapter 5 and verse 37, in a little passing comment, we have Gamaliel speaking. And he's speaking to the Sanhedrin. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do about these apostles who keep preaching in the name of Jesus. And Gamaliel speaks up and says, hey, we probably shouldn't worry about this because if it's from God, we're not going to be able to stop it. But if it's not from God, it's going to fade out. That's the premise he argues from. But in Acts chapter 5 and verse 37, Gamaliel said, was po- he was referencing a couple of guys who started, uh, got a following, and they eventually fizzed out or were... Uh, killed or captured. Gamaliel said in Acts chapter 5 and verse 37, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. But he makes reference to this this rebellion that happened in the days of the census. When was that census? He's actually referring to events that took place Back in 8 B.C., that's the other star I've put on the timeline. He's referring to a census that occurred in 8 B.C., and according to historical records, Augustus did have some censuses, not empire-wide necessarily, but some censuses did occur under the emperorship of Augustus in 28 B.C. and 8 B.C. Apparently, these really only focused on Roman citizens, but it's quite possible, as one author points out, that, that Herod, being, not, being that he had a little bit of, uh, of freedom uh, within the Roman Empire, he's more of an ally to Rome than a subject of Rome, he may have decided to, in his friendship with the Roman Empire, conduct, his, conduct a similar census within his territory that came a little later. So, This just gives us some benchmarks. We know when Augustus was emperor, and we know that there were a couple of censuses in the region, one in 6 AD, one in 8 BC. Let's talk about Herod now. Let's put him on this timeline. Herod is the key central figure to understanding the birth of Jesus, because one thing we do know is that Herod actually died in 4 BC. Herod died before the timetable of Jesus' birth that is typically mentioned. Herod died in 4 B.C. So how does this work? If if Herod died in 4 B.C., then how are we to fit the pieces together to understand when Jesus was born? Not only that, there was a third guy mentioned, remember? A third Roman uh, leader named Quirinius. Quirinius, as governor of Syria was in that role from about A.D. 6 to A.D. 12. Now, so you start looking at this, where do these three guys overlap? And and I've put these color-coded markers on this timeline to show their reigns, and when you look at these three categories, they don't overlap. So where does Jesus fit in the picture? Is Luke just absolutely historically wrong? Well, there is one other little piece of the puzzle that's worth mentioning. And that has to do with Quirinius. Quirinius was governor of Syria when when, um, parts of Herod's territory were incorporated into Syria in AD 6. But before that, between 10 BC and 7 BC, Quirinius was entitled legate of Syria. In other words, he was sent to Syria by Uh, Caesar Augustus, let me find my note here, Uh, he was sent to Syria by a Caesar Augustus on military orders uh, for some particular mission, I don't recall what that mission was, but he was present in the region from 10 BC to 7 BC. Now, I forgot to add the stars up here again, but if you recall, one of those censuses that happened during the reign of Caesar Augustus 
occurred in the year 8 BC. That census would have taken place while Quirinius was in the region in an official capacity for Rome. It would have happened when Herod the Great was still king uh, of Judea, and it would have happened while Caesar Augustus was still emperor. And that seems to coincide to some degree, or it seems to at least give this overlap of these three characters in a time frame that would fit a census. So here's what happens. Based on this information, most scholars suggest that Jesus was actually likely born somewhere between 8 B.C. and 4 B.C. That somewhere in this time frame is when Jesus was born. Because it cooperates with all of these characters in these official capacities. And maybe Quirinius's title is, is, is in flux between when he was in the region from 10 to 7 B.C. and when he was in the region from 6 to 12 A.D. Maybe there was some uh, um, fluctuation of title for him, and, and, and so for Luke, he was governor, but maybe on inscriptions he wasn't always identified as governor. Maybe he had other titles, too. But we, we know that these three individuals who are mentioned in between Matthew and Luke's Gospels, they had this period of overlap, and that Jesus could have been born a little bit later than that year zero we are so accustomed to. Does that really matter in the grand scheme of things? Absolutely not. I just share this information because, well, it intrigues me. It intrigues me. And, and for me, the bigger question is, why, why did Luke think it's so important to provide these names and this historical data? Why did Luke feel it that it needed to be said about Caesar, Augustus, and Quirinius, and all that? I think it seems it's part of Luke's plan to place his story in a historical context. That God is the God of history. That there are people in power, but ultimately the one who has control over the world is entering the world as an infant in a particular time and in a particular place. I like the way one author said it. He said, In mentioning this Roman emperor, Luke revealed his historical interests and indicated that salvation history is both particular and universal in its implications. Meaning that it has implications for the Jews, but it also has implications for the whole world. And that's why, that's why it's important to sit in the context of a world empire and a time and period and culture and history. And so really knowing the year Jesus was born doesn't make a lot of difference. But it does influence some of our understanding of when events take place, and, 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 and it helps us set a historical context for understanding these events. And so if Jesus was born a few years earlier than year zero, then the church probably was not established in specifically AD 30. It may have been a few years earlier. It does have implications on that, but that's all theoretical. It is not necessary for us to know the year Jesus was born, but it is worth mentioning because guess what? What would a skeptic do with the information about Augustus, Herod, and Quirinius? They would want to use it to refute the legitimacy of the Bible. And so if that red line of Quirinius is all that a skeptic sees, then it helps to know the green line too. I told you at the outset of this, this series that at times I'm going to present information that's intentional for helping us to defend Scripture because I believe that is one of our tasks and this is one of those pieces of information that can easily be utilized to refute the legitimacy of inspired Scripture. And so we need, sometimes we need to know that this in, these issues exist, and here's the response to them. There is a way to understand Luke's uh, benchmarks for the historical time frame of Jesus' birth that doesn't negate the authority of Scripture. 
So with that being said, I want to move on to something a little less uh, controversial, a little less problematic, and that is the location. The location of this birth. So let's pick back up in Luke chapter 2, look at verse 3. And all went and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So everyone in the Roman Empire was required to return to his ancestral city, according to this passage. Now, if this was not an empire-wide census, if it was more uh, local, for whatever reason, Joseph, because he's a descendant of David, has to return to the city of David's birth, which is Bethlehem. It's kind of interesting. How do you determine which ancestor's home you go to? Do you go to your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather? Because people are born in different locations. In this instance, I believe it's because David is such a significant feature, figure. He's the, royal, the, he's the uh, initiator of a royal dynasty that anybody who has a tie to David is going back to David's ancestral place. So Joseph is returning to Bethlehem for that reason. Now that sounds, uh, you know, I like this. That one commentator said a command that everyone return to his own home seems to us, a strange way of taking a census. We, we're used to censuses in the U.S. every 10 years. We're used to that. We don't have to go somewhere. They come to us. They send the document to where we are, or they'll send out census takers to our address. We don't have to relocate to, to do the census. But in this context, there's evidence in history of, of censuses being done in this style for, for national pride or for uh, a familial pride. Think about how hard it is sometimes for our government to get census data. I remember in 2000, my brother, while in college, signed up to be a census taker. And, and every day he was being sent to go to people's homes that weren't filling out census data because some people just keep putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. Well, think about it in this sense. You're having a family reunion at the same time you're being uh, involved in a census. So there's some sense of pride being associated with the census so that you'll take part, so that you'll do it, so that you won't put it off. There, there may be a level of this that is appealing to the, the uh, pride of families, of tribes, of towns, of nations, of religions to get them to take part in this. There is some evidence of that, particularly in Egypt, as cited by, by at least one of the, the commentators that I uh, studied from. But here's what's interesting to me. It's the places. So where are Joseph and Mary, or at least Mary for, for what we know, where is she from? We talked about that two weeks ago. She is from Nazareth. So let's focus on that. She's from Nazareth. They have to go to Bethlehem. Here's a little map of the, the region of Judea. At the top of the map is a star I'm placing for Nazareth. That's where Nazareth is located on this map. Hopefully you're familiar enough with this region uh, from your biblical studies that you know Bethlehem is down in the southern part. Nazareth is in the region of Galilee. Bethlehem is down in the region of Judea, just south of Jerusalem. By air, from point to point by air, that's only 70 miles. That doesn't seem like much, does it? For you and I, that's not a bad, that's a, that's a one-hour drive. Well, no, we're in Atlanta. That's a little bit longer. It, without traffic, that's, that takes you no time. We're, that is a, a small distance to us because of our transportation uh, technology and, and our transportation advancements. But for these individuals... They're traveling that 70 miles on foot or on animal with a nine-month pregnant woman. It's not going to go as quickly as you'd like. And that fascinates me. She's nine months pregnant, traveling 70 miles, either on foot or on donkey. Either way, it's not going to be a pleasant travel. 
But that's the circumstances they find themselves in. Now, they're going from Nazareth to Bethlehem at this point. Let's focus on Bethlehem for a moment. Pictured on the screen is a Google Maps screenshot I took today of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Just to give you some perspective, I know this is not a clear map. You can't read anything on it. But basically, this region down here, where there's a lot of structures, that's Bethlehem. Everything up here is Jerusalem. So these two communities are incredibly close to one another. And just to give you some perspective, that is the, where the Church of the Nativity is located. The Church of the Nativity is a, a church that was built on the traditional site of where Jesus was born. Whether or not it is the actual site where Jesus was born, we don't know. But it's where it has been documented historically. I think back to the days of, of Constantine. This is where they claim Jesus was born. I'm not here to debate or prove that. I'm just pointing to where that church is located. Because in comparison, that is where the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is. That star at the top marks the location of the Temple in Jerusalem. And if you were to fly through the air like a bird, you would travel approximately six miles. That's not very far. Some of you, not me, some of you walk or run that in a day. In, in an hour and a half max. That's how close they are to Jerusalem. Bethlehem is ultimately a suburb of the big city of Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus is going to be born. Now think about that. In the context of a king who wants to kill Jesus, how close the king is to an infant that he wants to kill. That's not a lot of distance. Isn't it amazing when you think about it? Just the, the God's provision is what I'm referring to. How Herod couldn't find him. How Herod couldn't locate Jesus and he's less than six, he's, he's, he's six miles away. How God protected his infant son in those days with just six miles of separation. Now let's turn our attention to uh, the fact that on this trip, to Bethlehem, Mary is with Joseph. I've often wondered, being in her state of pregnancy, why did she have to travel to Bethlehem? Because the policy of censuses of the day isn't that husband, wife, and children have to go. It's just that the husband has to make the trip. And in their, in their format of census taking, you just needed the head of the household. He's the only one that would have to report. But Mary goes with Joseph. And I wonder if there's some significance there. If it's an indicator that that betrothal period has come to an end and she's now uh, living in his household because they are traveling together. It makes me wonder if, they, they, if he's concerned about leaving her at home because of the scandalous nature of, of her pregnancy and the, the potential of mistreatment from the community. You know, she went and lived with um, Elizabeth near Jerusalem, for the first three months of her pregnancy. I wonder if there, that she made the trip to just avoid being alone and dealing with the glares and the stares and the gossip. But then I also wonder, well, I don't wonder that God's hand was involved. I don't wonder that at all. But I wonder, if you were Joseph and Mary, you knew you were giving birth to the Son of God, would you feel compelled to go back and read the Old Testament make sure that you provided for every Messianic prophecy? Would you feel, feel it necessary to go back and understand the prophecies that you need to contribute to in these early phases of his life? Like Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, where there's a Messianic prophecy speaking about the birth of the Messiah in the city of Bethlehem. Would they be compelled by Scripture, to fulfill those prophecies. But even if they weren't compelled, God's going to make it happen. 
I just wonder those things when I consider the fact that Mary made this trip at nine months pregnant. Now I want to turn your attention to verse 6 and verse 7 of Luke chapter 2 as we look at the circumstances of Jesus' birth in particular. Verse 6 we read, And while they were there, referring to Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. That's all the information we have about the birth of Jesus. That's not much. There are two pieces of information I want to focus in on. First, they laid him in a manger. A manger is a reference to a feeding trough. That means Jesus was born in an area where animals were typically kept. That, the thing that stands out to me about that, that I probably wouldn't have thought anything about if I lived in that era, but all I can think about is how unhygienic that birth was. A newborn baby being laid down in an object where animals eat. I have a, a dog at my house uh, that we dearly love. We've had it for years. And we are very attentive to Leah staying away from the dog. Now, in, that's in part because she, we have learned she's allergic to dogs. But she loves to walk over to that dog bowl. She wants to stick her hand in the water. She wants to pick up any, food, any dry food that's left in the bowl. She's fascinated by it. And here's Sarah and I worried about germs and worried about her uh, having an allergic reaction, and we're trying to keep her away from that. But here's Joseph and Mary. Their only option at the birth of Jesus is to put him in this unhygienic situation. Of course, germs weren't discovered for some time after this. And so there, the concern about hygiene wasn't there like it is now. But that just stands out to me. And here's the thing. We hear that word manger, and we picture that feeding trough, and that is not a false picture. But here is what we do. What facility are they in? What does Luke say the, the structure, the spaces that they're staying in when this child is born? Was it a stable? Probably. See, now this is a picture of a uh, ceramic nativity scene you can buy online. And notice, any nativity scene you see, or I shouldn't say any, but the majority of the nativity scenes you see, aren't they a stable? That is the least likely case. This is a picture of the grotto of the nativity in Bethlehem under the church of the nativity. You can't really see it very well, but this is the uh, traditional site where Jesus was born. That little star on the floor is supposed to be the exact place where he was born. Now, I, Brother, Brother Gene, did you get to go here when you went to Israel? Okay. I, I know it's a, popu I mean, it's a popular tourist place. You can't really tell here, but you can see some stonework back there. So decorated with, with linens and, and uh, stonework and artistic representations. You can't tell that you're in a cave except for seeing some stones back there. This is a, a cave underneath the floor of the church. It is quite possible that Jesus' birth happened in a similar cave because that was a place where from time to time they would keep animals. That's where they would uh, shelter them for the evening. So that's a possibility of the type of place. It's also possible that Jesus was actually born in a house. This is a depiction of a first century Jewish house. It's hard to see because it's not that big, but the lower level of a Jewish house at that time would be essentially a courtyard with some stables off in the back and some uh, storage area as well. And then all the living space was up this ladder on, a, on the second floor. And then you would have another ladder up to the third floor, which you might be familiar with from stories of Elijah or from the man being lowered through the roof. But animals often slept inside the homes of their owners at night. 
So it is even possible that when Jesus did, when Jesus' parents did find a place for him to, to be born that evening, it could have been inside of a house, and they're just down here in the courtyard with the animals for the evening. We don't know the exact location, and we don't need to know the exact location. But I, I bring this up because we just have this assumption of what kind of place Jesus was born in. Notice, though, the text does not tell us the facilities, nor does the text tell us whether or not any animals were present. It's quite possible that they cleared out the stable. It may be that there were no animals in that house that night, and that's why they found a place to stay. It may be that the cave was empty, and that's why they were able to stay there. It's quite po- Just because the manger is there doesn't mean it's a stable and doesn't mean there are animals present. Just worth noting, because nativity scenes are made into such a big deal. And I, I, I love challenging the way we picture these things so that we, we, we think more in line with the text. We don't know the type of facility Jesus was in, but we do know that he was laid in a manger. The other thing we do know is that there was no place for them at the inn. See, that's where we... we are driven from this idea that it could have been a physical structure that Jesus was born in because there was no place for them in the inn. That's the only facility mentioned in the birth narrative of Jesus, an inn that they could not stay in. And the lack of a place for them in the inn, it speaks to the number of people that had traveled to Bethlehem at this time. Uh, There's no telling how many people were present because of the census, and Bethlehem was not a big town. Jerusalem was a big town. Bethlehem was just an outskirts suburb, if you will. And the lack of a place to stay may have been the result of them departing Nazareth too late. Or maybe it could speak to the length of the travel because of her pregnancy. We don't know why there was no place for them at the inn. But we do know that they weren't able to stay there. And here's something that's always fascinated me. I showed you how close Bethlehem was to Jerusalem a minute ago. Mary's relative is Elizabeth. Elizabeth's husband is Zacharias. What was his occupation? Priest. Where did priests work? Where did priests work? Temple area, which was how many miles away? Six miles away, give or take. Why couldn't they just go stay with Zacharias and Elizabeth? She stayed with them for the first three months of her pregnancy. I've always wondered that. Well, we know why. Because Christ had to be born in Bethlehem. We, we know that. But isn't it interesting that that's not part of the story? You see, when you, when you think about things like that, it makes you appreciate God all the more. Because even though that it seems like an easy solution for where they could stay and give birth to this child, it doesn't fit into the Messianic prophecy. And it goes to show that God keeps His Word. For when He prophesied that His Son would be born in Bethlehem, He made sure that happened even if there were better options for his son. What also is interesting to me is that when we consider the birth of Jesus in comparison to the birth of John the Baptist, it's a lot less spectacular. John's birth took place with great fanfare. There were midwives, there were relatives, there were um, celebrations, there were customs that were kept. Meanwhile, Jesus' birth takes place in solitude. Jesus' birth features him and his parents, no midwife, no extended family, no grand celebration of, of a village. So humble by comparison. 
the king of kings could not have had a more humble entrance into his kingdom. And that is really evident when you consider the only other people who were present for his birth. The witnesses. Not so much present for his birth, but present shortly after his birth, I should say. So let's look at verses 8 through 16, or really 8 through 20 of Luke chapter 2. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and on And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The first witnesses to the birth of Jesus were a group of shepherds. Why did God choose shepherds? to be the first witnesses to the birth of Jesus? That's an interesting question to me because there's a couple things you need to know about shepherds. They were the most unlikely candidates because they had the lowest social standing. Shepherds were considered unclean. They were, as one author said, the social outcasts of their day. A necessary yet ostracized caste without whom the temple could not function. While they tended the animals required for ritual sacrifice, the conscientious Jew, ever concerned with purity, spurned shepherds as too unclean to stand among other worshipers. That's so very fascinating. The shepherds were the outcasts, kind of like the tax collectors kind of like the sinners that Jesus so often welcomed. And yet they're the recipients, the first recipients of the good news. They serve as a reminder of Jesus' words to the religious elite in Mark chapter 2 and verse 17 when he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm not saying these shepherds were were, were horrible people. I'm saying from the social perspective of the Jewish people of that day, these guys were the least of the least, the lowest of the low, the, the inferior group. And God chose the inferior ones to get to be the first ones to lay eyes on his son. Not only that, it's interesting to me that In my research, I found that shepherds were considered dishonest, generally speaking. They were considered unreliable, and according to Jewish law, not Mosaic law, not biblical law, but the teaching of rabbis, they were not allowed to give testimony in courts of law because they were considered too unreliable. So as the report of Jesus' birth goes forth from these individuals. It wouldn't garner as much attention from people like Herod the Great who would use that information to plot against the life of Jesus. Remember, Herod's going to be listening to wise men from the east, not shepherds from the hill country. And so Luke chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 is interesting Because when the shepherds saw the child, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered 
or marveled, another translation says, at what the shepherds told them. Now, that, that can speak to the fascination and the intrigue that people had, but it could also speak to confusion and controversy. Do I believe what these guys are telling me or not? This is great news, but consider its source. Have you ever said that? Consider its source. That could have been the reaction of a great many to the fact that it's shepherds who are talking about a Messiah who had arrived. There may be a mixture of amazement and disbelief as people listen to the message of these shepherds because shepherds were generally considered dishonest in their culture. But these are the guys that God chose. These are the individuals that God chose to be the first to witness the birth of Jesus. And to me, that's just a reminder that Jesus came to save sinners, to save the lost, to save the outcast. To save everyone ultimately, but Jesus always had a particular concern for those who were outcast. It's also worth mentioning that the shepherd's occupation was reminiscent of David's original occupation, as well as Jesus' spiritual function. So they're in the city of David, and the birth narrative of Jesus highlights uh, quite often his connection to David. David, as we know, was a shepherd, and Jesus was being born in the city of David, so it seems only fitting that those continuing the occupation of David should have the opportunity to meet the righteous branch of David, as the Messiah is called in Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 5. And then we have Jesus, who would later refer to himself as the door of the sheep in John chapter 10 and verse 7, and the good shepherd in John chapter 10 and verse 10. And Peter would refer to Jesus as the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. So there's, there's even some, some metaphor here involved. There's even some symbolism, I should say, involved here in the fact that Jesus himself will identify as a shepherd, and it is shepherds who are first going to lay eyes on him. And it's also worth mentioning that shepherds raise sheep. Shepherds were essential to the work of the temple. When you consider the sacrifices that are, are made continually at the temple, every day sacrifices being made, individuals, sacrifices on behalf of the nation, sacrifices for individuals who show up to fulfill their obligations, and shepherds are a necessary uh, part of that temple complex work because they're the ones taking care of these sheep who are likely going to make their way one day to the temple for a sacrifice. And we are talking about shepherds in the region of Jerusalem. Shepherds situated somewhere around Jerusalem and Bethlehem. There is a teaching in the Mishnah, the teaching, the the uh, rabbinical teachings of the Jewish people, the commentary, if you will, on the Old Testament by them, that says that um, flocks were supposed to be kept in the wilderness, not in the city. And there was a rabbinic rule that provides that any animal found between Jerusalem and a spot near Bethlehem must be presumed to be used for sacrifice. So if you find a sheep wandering near Bethlehem, you're supposed to assume that sheep is supposed to be used at the temple one day. And that's the region that these shepherds are likely coming from. And these shepherds are the one laying eyes on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist would say in John chapter 1, verse 29. There's a lot of symbolism and God's selection of the shepherds to be the first ones to see Jesus. Our time is about out, and there's plenty more we could talk about in regards to the birth 
of Jesus. But I'm going to go ahead and wrap up here so I don't start into something that I don't have time to finish. Next week is my intent to look at Matthew chapter 2 and the story of the wise men, as well as possibly, if time permits, other stories that will categorically say fall in the childhood of Jesus, such as his trip to Jerusalem when he's 12 years old. But we'll start next week with Matthew chapter 2 and the visit of the wise men. I appreciate your time and your attention in this study, and it is my prayer that it continues to be a blessing for you as we learn about the life of Jesus. If you would, join me in a word of prayer as we draw to a close tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we are humbled by the coming of your Son to this world, by the, the, by the humble way in which he entered, by the circumstances that are, are so unique and miraculous and special, by your willingness to send him and his willingness to set aside so that he could come. May we always appreciate his incarnation, and may we ever strive to emulate him. But most of all, Lord, we're thankful that he was willing to go to the cross, that he was willing to take on our sins at Calvary, and that he rose from the dead. Because through that, Lord, we know that we can spend eternity with you in heaven. May our appreciation ever grow for what you've done and for what he's done, and may we never take for granted the blessings that you've poured out on us through him. And it is through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we offer this prayer. Amen.